get some room tone. Oh, I, I don't know if I know how to do this. Just to be quiet. No one can see you. Do I need to hold my breath? No, we, we probably did it already. Okay. Do you think you're, do you think, like, only I can, will ever see this performance? <laughs> Say one more thing. Hello, gentle listener. No, that's my line. Oh, my bad. Hello, gentle listener. What? That's, you just said my line again. <laughs> okay, see, this is what I was afraid of. The quick like, brown, yo. Now, can you hear me better than you can hear Ethan? I don't know. Can can they? Welcome to a very extra special edition of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. Uh, Long-time listeners will be used to the fact that for our special editions, we uh, break sort of all the rules and all the premises. Uh, we don't usually drink scotch. Uh, you know, we're usually not in a room, um, at least not in the same room. We are both in rooms because that's how recording inside works. Are you good? You can just sneeze. Like, we can edit that out. It was a burp, not a sneeze. Oh, well, thank you. Um, as you may have, as we may have just uh, inadvertently revealed, gentle listener, uh, where I was going with this is that today we're breaking the rules so much that we don't even have Michael on this one. Uh, that's right. Michael had some personal... Michael had a personal life that happened in, like... Usually the priorities on uh, in Michael's and my lives are like this show number one and then everything else number two. Um, I but... can attest to this. What was that? I can attest to this. Thank you. Um, but uh, this time, uh, the 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 orders reversed and Michael just wasn't able to make it in. Uh... <coughs> that time it was a sneeze. Thank you. Uh, I was unclear. Michael is unable to make it! So, I have my wife, and I'm already starting to potentially regret this decision. Uh, gentle listener, you may recognize Karen, my wife, as, uh, the person who we call live into every, uh, session of, like, the regular edition episodes, rather, of, of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. We call her live into the room, hand her a script... Only let her say the things that are on the script. Edit out literally anything else she says. Uh, and, you know, then keep going and usually say some say some mean stuff about her. Uh, now, Karen, how does it feel to sort of be let out of your, out of your box? Uh, it's pretty great. Um, you're actually letting me drink cherry soda this time instead of, you know, the usual bread and water. Um... <laughs> Great to get a little exercise, stretch my legs, you know. Wow. Wow. Uh, you took this to a real dark place real fast. I mean, you said let out of the box, so I assumed you were just keeping me in the box and then letting me out for Like tied to a radiator? Like in a <laughs> yeah. horror movie? Yeah. Wow. All right. Um, I knew I was going to have to make some disclaimers throughout the course of this episode, but uh, I didn't expect it to happen so soon. I do not keep my wife in a box. The box was a metaphor. <laughs> uh, so please don't send the law after me. No, I'm not actually kept in a box. I'm usually uh, upstairs hearing Michael and Ethan uh, yell, yell into about a microphone? Ye yell into a microphone. Yeah. What were you gonna say? Yell about what? About literature. Oh, okay. I, I just thought my, you might have had, like, some creative, sarcastic description to use instead of literature, but no. No. Did they say, like, white guys who died in the 18th century or whatever? Um, I think you read a book by a black guy once. Wow! <laughs> I don't know if I can keep that remark. 
We try to make our reading choices as diverse as possible. Uh, we have read books by multiple women and multiple <laughs> people of color. The if you lined up the stats and and you know did the numbers versus how many of those sorts of people versus how many white men probably wouldn't look great for us. But <laughs> uh, anyway, um, yeah. So uh, before my wife gets me in even more trouble, um, what are we? We're, what are we doing today? You might ask. Uh, Today, we have decided to do, um, recently Michael and I did a special episode that we called the First Paragraph Challenge. Um, so we've decided to sort of spread the, the gamesmanship, spread the, uh, spread the competition out. Um, and I've decided, you know, I lost that one to Michael, if I remember right, and I decided, uh, why, why not go for two and lose to my wife also? <laughs> Um, so for those of you who don't remember or didn't listen to the first paragraph challenge, Karen and I have each picked out a total of six books. The first, we'll go in two rounds. The first round will be books that we each know that the other has read. The second round will be books that, like, maybe the other person has read, but it's either way, it's likely that we will be able to guess them. Uh, so, you know, Karen's not going to come at me with her, like, babysitter's club from <laughs> se books from seventh grade or whatever, and I'm not going to come at her with, like, Rogue Squadron by Michael Stackpole from 1998. Um, we're going to play fair. Uh, the the rounds are, or the, each, each, uh, each book will have two chances to guess. The first, um, the first guess will just be out of a clear blue sky, and if the person guessing gets gets the correct answer out of a clear blue sky after one guess they get three points if they fail um the person offering the guesser and the guess eat i guess the the person not guessing it took me far too long to say uh will offer three choices of which book it could be to the guesser and if the guesser picks correctly from among those three choices uh then the guesser gets one point instead of three. Uh, are those rules clear enough, dear? As far as I know. Whether it's are, they, clear to the... are they clear enough to you? Yeah, I know what we're doing. <laughs> That's all I wanted to know. <laughs> uh, are, you, are they acceptable to you? Yes. Do you accept the terms of this book I duel? I accept the terms of this book duel. All right. And now, when do we uh, stand back to back and go ten paces and throw well, a city? Well, I did. I did get your your D and D DM screen Ooh. out to see, but I don't think the dimensions work with where we're sitting. I thought maybe we could like hide the books behind it or something, but I don't. Yeah. I don't think it'll. Like we will have to actually turn our backs on each other. Which after how you've treated me this first seven <laughs> minutes of the of the show, I'm like looking forward to even less than I actually was. Um, okay, before we do that, uh, traditionally we talk about what each other are drinking. How did that sentence go for you? I'm confident in it, and I'm uh, powering, powering you ahead. haven't even had any booze yet. Uh, that is correct, thank you. Um, so Karen, what are you drinking today? Currently I'm drinking uh, Point Premium Black Cherry Cream Soda. Because it's one in the afternoon. Well, it's one thirty-five. All right. Uh, and your tone was a little judgmental, <laughs> given that you know that I am sitting here with wider raspberry hard cider. Um, you did, however, in this in this ongoing like rhetorical duel, you did preempt the bit I was going to do, where I was going to accuse you of being like a precious little flower who <laughs> couldn't drink an alcoholic beverage. Now, disclaimer number two, gentle listener, mm -hmm. that is a joke. Don't ever let anyone peer pressure you into uh, drinking alcohol when you're not comfortable with it, especially if you're a teen. Um, if your friends, you know, try to peer pressure you into drinking, get new friends to drink with. <laughs> um, yeah, so that said, 
Uh, I am, yeah, drinking Wider's Raspberry Hard Cider at 1.35 in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. It is a weekend day. I uh, have no further defense to offer. It's also like 5% ABV. It is right. not the, the hardest of hard ciders. Uh, but anyway, this is a family show where we try to keep things clean, so we should move on before I say the word hard any more times. Great, 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 great. Um, yes. So, Karen, as the guest of honor, uh, I will let you come at me first with your first, uh, your first entry? You'd think we'd, I, we've, this is the second time we're doing this, you'd think I'd have the terminology sort of, yeah. uh, nailed down further. First attack. The first soiree. The first. The first uh, soiree. Yeah, I don't know. Like the first. These are these books are each parties that we're sort of attending. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I kind of like like, that. I kind of like. As long as you're committed to that. This this book is a a party that you're attending with the author. I mean, I do like that, but. I mean, we're only getting into the first paragraph of each of these books. That's true. It's a very brief party. Yeah, I was gonna say like speed dating. Okay, see, I'm back on board. I was, I was, because <laughs> I was like, well, getting get the first paragraph just feels like when you, you know, you literally have to show up to the party and be like, hi, I just wanted to put in an appearance, but I'm catching a flight to London, and so I have to go now after five minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's like deeply unsatisfying, but like, I kind of like the speed dating thing. Yeah. Uh, all right. Anyway, I will turn my back and okay. allow you to uh, extract your first book. So I'm going to say you should read me the the first paragraph and then put the book back so I can turn around and like maunder into the microphone. Okay. Because otherwise the audio will be real weird. Yeah, that seems fine. All right. Here we go. All right. Are you, are you turned? Yes. You turned sufficiently? I, you can see me. I'm yes. right here. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Yes. The handsome dining room of the Hotel Wessex, with its gilded plaster shields and the mural depicting the green mountains, had been reserved for the ladies' night dinner of the Fort Bula Rotary Club. That is all. Can I, can I turn back around? You, you can turn back around right now. Oh my gosh! It feels so familiar. It is a book from the shelf of books that you read last year. Yeah, I mean, me saying it feels so familiar should be pointing out the obvious, because, like, as we've said, the first three books are books that we each know the other one has read. So, like, obviously it should feel familiar. Mm-hmm. I guess by saying it feels so familiar, I mean it feels like it should be more familiar than it actually is. Um, It sounds very Sinclair Lewis. And it's not Elmer Gantry because the opening of Elmer Gantry is Elmer Gantry was drunk. I don't. Hmm. I was gonna say I don't think it's Babbitt, but it's been long enough since it was since I read Babbitt. Couldn't be sure. All right. Uh, now just tell me yes or no on this one. Obviously, is it "It Can't Happen Here" by Sinclair Lewis? Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> I almost that was that was my first instinct as soon as I thought of Sinclair Lewis. I almost second guessed myself when I got to Babbitt, but I'm glad I did not. Yep. All right, so that's me up three to nothing. Great job. Is it your turn? Okay. It is. Go ahead and turn your back. Oh no! Don't knock the microphone. Ah! Sorry, gentle listener. Uh, Probably very painful for very you, Karen. Violent. Karen tried to drop you on the floor. I saved you, not to brag. Yeah. Um. All right. I'm gonna start out with one that I think will probably be a pretty, pretty easy one for you. Okay. Well, it turns out I don't know where the first paragraph of this one is myself. <laughs> <laughs> We can't. I'm gonna have to edit that out. Copyright infringement. Ava is very litigious, apparently. That's true. I bet they wish the they uh, let the McElroy brothers keep their theme song. It's probably true. <laughs> All right, here we go. Yes. 
You ready? There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. (laughs) He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. In their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on beds, and the windows were always open. All right, dear. Are you... Is it put away? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I knew this one immediately. It is Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. Well, as as everyone listening might know, depending on how much of the mostly silent I keep in, I would have gotten it wrong because I was sure it was Prince Caspian. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, well, you know, I, I tailored these to you rather than to me, so yeah. here we are. All right, well, that's a, introduced a little tension in the game. We're all tied up at three to three. So, Karen? All right. Please go ahead and do your second entry. The suburb of Saffron Park lay on the sunset side of London, as red and ragged as a cloud of sunset. It was built of a bright brick throughout, its skyline was fantastic, and even its ground plan was wild. It had been the outburst of a speculative builder, faintly tinged with art, who called its architecture sometimes Elizabethan and sometimes Queen Anne, apparently under the impression that the two sovereigns were identical. It was described with some justice as an artistic colony, though it never in any definable way produced any art. But although its pretensions to be an intellectual center were a little vague, its pretensions to be a pleasant place were quite indisputable. The stranger who looked for the very the stranger who looked for the first time at the quaint red houses could only think how very oddly shaped the people must be who could fit into them. Nor when he met the people was he disappointed in this respect. The place was not only pleasant but perfect if once he could regard it not as a deception but rather as a dream, even if the people were not artists the whole was nevertheless artistic that young man with the long auburn hair and the impudent face that young man was not really a poet but surely he was a poem that old gentleman with the wild white beard and the wild white hat that venerable humbug was not really a philosopher but at least he was the cause of philosophy in others that scientific gentleman with the bald egg-like head and the bare bird-like neck with no real right to the airs of science that he assumed he had not discovered anything new in biology but what biological creature could he have discovered more singular than himself thus and thus only the whole place had properly to be regarded it had to be considered not so much as a workshop for artists but as a frail but finished work of art a man who stepped into its social atmosphere felt as if he had stepped into a written comedy uh, took me a second, but I realized what it was about a third of the way in, and that was before we even got to the classic, like, point-counterpoint of, uh, uh, like, paradoxical descriptions deployed that would have given it away, uh, probably even if I hadn't read the book. That's The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. Ding, 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 correct. I figured it'd be... Kind of an easy one, given the length of the first paragraph, but... It's not even... To me, it wasn't even the length. It's just, like, so char- all so characteristic yeah. of Chesterton. Like, mm-hmm. from the snarky little comment about the the builder not knowing the difference between Queen Anne and Queen Elizabeth, down to just, like, all of the, like... Again, you know, descriptions, like, he wasn't... He produced no art himself, but he was the cause of art in others, like... I think only maybe, like, G.K. Chesterton or Mark Twain could have written that sentence, and Mark Twain would have phrased it differently. Um, yeah, but it's a good choice. And, I mean, how do you not keep reading at that point? <laughs> right. Um, good. All right. Well, okay. are you ready for your second one? I'm ready. Mrs. Eva Marie, all right, I'm going to start that over. All right. Uh, I'm going to call foul on myself (laughs) for mispronouncing the third word in the sentence. Mrs. Eva Marie Olinsky always gave good answers. Whenever she was asked how she had selected her team for the academic bowl, 
She chose one of several good answers. Most often she said that the four members of her team had skills that balanced one another. That was reasonable. Sometimes she said that she knew her team would practice. That was accurate. To the district superintendent of schools, she gave a bad answer, but she did... She did that only once, only to him, and if that answer was not good, her reason for giving it was. I know it. It is The View from Saturday by E.L. Konigsberg. You got it. Yes. A delightful author. If you have not read her stuff, please do so immediately. Yeah, I, I do have to second that. Uh, I would probably never have read her stuff if... Uh... My wife had not insisted, and I am glad that she did. Like, Konigsberg, especially her famous one, probably most famous ones are View from Saturday and from the mixed dub files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler? Frankweiler, I think. Frankweiler. Yeah. Yeah. Which are both, like, those very slim, like, middle grade looking novels that are probably. Mixed up files might even be, like, less than 150 pages. View from yeah. Saturday is, like, 150, 200 pages. Like, I just always pass them over because they looked even what, you know, it will shock everyone here, especially my wife, to learn that when I was the age that middle grade novels were aimed at, I was <laughs> far too good for them. I considered myself far too good for them. And I never, like, reversed from that position. <laughs> So I would just pass them over literally because of their length and packaging, which right. is stupid. Uh, and if it hadn't been for my wife, would have made me miss some uh, delightful, delightful works. I yeah. do have to read more of more of Konigsberg. Well, I have the whole box set. Um, I know that's where I got the view from Saturday. From. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely recommend her. It's sort of in the same vein as like Kate D. Camillo. Yeah. Um, not as like beautiful but there's like interesting quirks to her writing that yeah well and they're both like in the same category as people who write very much for a particular age group but also manage to like write things that transcend that age group and just like enter the realm of things that anybody should should read right very good so are you ready wait i just did you did mine. I did yours. So my turn. This is so are last... we at nine to six right now? No, we're at six to six. I got both of mine right. And oh, got both yeah, of okay. Right. See, this is why I need Michael. He's the, <laughs> he's the bookkeeper. He's he would the DM. Be, he would be writing, de writing all of this down in like a spreadsheet. Sure. Meanwhile, I'm keeping it in my head. And that's... It's clearly going well. Clearly going well. Well, that's what I have you for. Well, apparently. yeah, I can keep track. It's Thank right. you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Okay, are you ready? Yes. The free state of Dormare was a very small country, but seeing that it was bounded on the south by the sea and on the north and east by mountains, while its center consisted of a rich plain watered by two rivers, a considerable variety of scenery and vegetation was to be found within its borders. Indeed, towards the west, in striking contrast with the pastoral sobriety of the central plain, the aspect of the country became, if not tropical, at any rate distinctly exotic. Nor was this to be wondered at, perhaps, for beyond the debatable hills, the boundary country of Doromare in the west, lay fairyland. There had, however, been no intercourse between the two countries for many centuries. Uh, well, that, my dear, is Lud in the Mist by Hope Murleys. A book that, it's almost shocking, hasn't shown up on this podcast previously, and probably will later if not sooner eventually yeah. do you think michael's read it uh i don't think that he has well have, why haven't you taken this opportunity i know that's what i'm saying like, to read it i'm i do need to do that and i, <laughs> and I will probably pretty soon i in, in fact I, it's been on my mind this book because when i i think i first read it in high school uh let in the mist for for those of you who have no idea what what this book is um, is one of those books that comes up when you talk about, like, pre-Tolkien uh, fantasy novels. Um, I think both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, uh, I think, took inspiration from Lud in the Mist when creating their own sort of British fairy tales that adults could could read. Uh, it, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a sort of precursor novel to that. I've also heard it described as 
fairy tales for middle-aged people <laughs> or a fairy tale for middle-aged people it's um you know as, as you even hear in that in that first paragraph it takes it it you know talks about fairyland and and that's all sort of a thing it neil gaiman strongly recommends it and it reminds me of his book Coraline in that it strikes me as a book that children could read and enjoy and adults could read and be just terrified of in fact, like it would it would inflict much more terror on adult readers than on child readers i suspect in fact the in the in the edition ethan has there's a foreword by neil gaiman yes yeah um in fact one of my claims to fame what i started to say is i i first read this book in high school i think i read it annually for several years and then I reread it for the first time in several years, just last year. And when I did that, I tweeted at Neil Gaiman because I think it was on his recommendation that I had, you know, read the book in the first place. Uh, and basically said, I reread this book yet again and hope Merley's is a genius. And Neil Ga- Gaiman replied to my personal tweet Ooh. and just said she was, period, <laughs> which... I mean, like, I'm still walking on clouds from that. It probably happened over a year ago. I mean, ago. you're basically famous now. Am yeah, I right? exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Neil, if you hear this and have heard our episode from ages ago where we implied that a fictional child character from a novel could take you in a fight, I'm deeply sorry. I mean, he is pretty, like, weedy. Okay, stop! <laughs> I'm trying to get myself out of trouble. Uh, Cal, just undercutting me at every turn. Well, now that it's nine to nine and my wife has shown no implication of backing down from her uh, pro-husband trolling stance, um, now is when things get serious. Now we, uh, now we, you know, uh, we get down into, into the real battle. Wait. The gloves are off. No. It's it's nine to wait. six. Wait. It's nine to six because, wait. Because you haven't read the third one yet for me. Wait, but you started. Yeah, so I did, I went once, and then you went, and then I went, and then you went, and then I went. You've only read two. How did that work? If you, oh, because, okay, never mind. <laughs> All right, turn turn around. Okay. Turn around. I'm gonna, whatever. Are you ready? Yes. The week before I left my family in Florida and the rest of my minor life to go to boarding school in Alabama, my mother insisted on throwing me a going away party. You're already nodding. That is not acceptable. <laughs> To say that I had low expectations would be to underestimate the matter dramatically. Although I was more or less forced to invite all my school friends, i.e. the ragtag bunch of drama people and English geeks I sat with by social necessity in the cavernous cafeteria of my public school, I knew they wouldn't come. Still, my mother persevered, awash in the delusion that I had kept my popularity secret from her all these years. She cooked a small mountain of artichoke dip, she festooned our living room in green and yellow streamers, the colors of my new school, she bought two dozen champagne poppers and placed them around the edge of our coffee table. That's it? That's the first paragraph? What's the book? Looking for Alaska by John Green. Yeah, I figured you'd probably get that one pretty Take handily. Take that, Michael! Michael hates John Green. <laughs> okay, we can't make this the We Beef with Authors episode. Oof. Michael hates... Michael has not liked any of the books John Green has written. That's true. Michael... Does not personally want to fight John Green. <laughs> That's true. I mean, John Green also probably would not personally want to fight anyone, so... Yes, that's fair. Uh, right. Uh, Overall, now... What? Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to talk about John Green, generally. Overall, I think I good? think everyone knows. Everyone knows John Green? I think everyone knows about him. Alright, that's fair. If you have anything particular you really want to say. No, not really. Uh, yeah. All right. So, all the stuff I said before about round two, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of rewind your podcast tape and um, listen to that and then fast forward to this point because I don't feel like redoing it. I think I, I think I lost all of that I mean, energy. you could just take that chunk and put it... Yeah, I could, but that would be work. <laughs> like, 
Everyone knows I do as little work as possible editing this podcast. That's fair, that's fair. Okay. Go for it. Well, you have to turn around. Oh, yeah. Introduction. A biographical notice. Okay. Probably shouldn't be coming. Oh, yeah. Sir Walter Elliot of Kellynich Hall in Somersetshire was a man who, for his own amusement, never took up any book but the baronetage. There he found occupation for an idle hour and consolation in a distressed one. There his faculties were roused into admiration and respect by contemplating the limited remnant of the earliest patents. There any unwelcome sensations arising from domestic affairs changed naturally into pity and contempt as he turned over the almost endless creations of the last century, and there, if every other leaf were powerless, he could read his own history with an interest which never failed. This was the page at which the favorite volume always opened, Eliot of Kellynich Hall. Walter Eliot, born March 1st, 1760, married July 15th, 1784. Elizabeth, the daughter of James Stevenson, Esquire, of South Park in the county of Gloucester, by which lady, who died 1800, he had issue Elizabeth, born June 1st, 1785, Anne, born August 9th, 1787, a stillborn son, November 5th, 1789, Mary, born November 20th, 1791. Can you give me the gentleman's name again? Yes. Sir Walter Elliot. Is this Sense and Sensibility? It is not. Alright, read me your options. Okay. Uh, Nicholas Nickleby, Treasure Island, or Persuasion? I mean, those were already all thoughts that I had. And I think you want to trick me with the Treasure Island guess because one of the names given in the in the um, genealogy is Stevenson. So you're, you're hoping that I'll, like, glom onto that and forget that, like, it's the author of Treasure Island who's named Stevenson and not the character. Uh, I'm saying nothing. I know you. I was about to comment on your excellent poker face, which weirdly you don't really have when you play poker. That's true. Um, I'm gonna say Nicholas Nickleby. It is persuasion. It is persuasion. Ah, because <laughs> I've read Persuasion, but it's been a long time. But I thought somehow it would trigger. The memory, like, if it was Persuasion, that I would have remembered anything about that. Um, but I was in grad school when I read Persuasion, which means it's been over a decade, and also I was only sleeping about two hours a night. So, uh, those are my excuses. Okay. Alright, turn around. Yep. It's nine to nine. What? It's nine to nine still. Nine to nine? Yeah, like the score. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I forgot that we were keeping score. <laughs> Did you forget because you just lost points? Uh, I have no comment on that. All right. I'll make my report as if I told a story, for I was taught as a child on my homeworld that truth is a matter of the imagination. The soundest fact may fail or prevail in the style of its telling. Like that singular organic jewel of our seas which grows brighter as one woman wears it and worn by another, dulls and goes to dust. Facts are no more, no more solid, coherent, round, and real than pearls are. But both are sensitive. Um. Okay. This feels like a Gene Wolfe situation. Sure. Uh, I have read some Gene Wolfe, but it's been a while. I'm going to guess... Um, is it the 
Oh, shoot. What's the first book in the Earth of the New Sun? Or the Book of the New Sun? Um, the, the... Gosh, Dan. The Shadow of the Torturer. Yes, Shadow of the Torturer. Uh, no. Okay. That is incorrect. That's fair. Uh, is it... I didn't write any down because I thought I, in my arrogance, thought I'd be able to just foolish. come up with, with ones Very off the foolish. top of my head. Is it Dragon Singer by Anne McCaffrey, uh, Peace by Gene Wolfe, or The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin? I think it's Peace by Gene Wolfe. You know what? I'm going to give you that point because I did a dirty trick. Because I only put that in there because you made me think of Gene Wolfe. <laughs> it's not... No, I'm not going to give you that point. I'm just going to say fair. it's not that. Okay. I'll give you one more guess, though. Left Hand of Darkness. Yes. Yes. Would you have guessed that without the Gene Wolfe uh, I might have. Okay. Well, I have read Left Hand of Darkness, but... Yeah, I knew it was a risky entry because mm -hmm. of that, but... We'll, uh, we'll let you have that point because okay. I, I'm... Uh, ruling technical foul on myself. <laughs> I don't know why it reminded me of Wolf. Oh, it's very Wolfian, actually. Okay, okay. Um, I had not... All I've read of Le Guin is uh, some of the Earthsea books, and even those, it's been quite a while, like probably high school. Yeah. So um, I just picked Left Hand of Darkness because I knew you were at least somewhat familiar with it, and I was actually shocked even as I was reading it just now at like how Wolfian it sounded. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Ursula Le Guin has, like, she, she's spoken in very, terms of very high praise about Gene Wolfe, so, um, you know, there's certainly some affinities there. I'm not, I wouldn't go so far as to say one is trying to imitate the other necessarily, but. Right. Shouldn't be maybe terrifically surprising. It's definitely a similar period, too, of science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Book of the New Sun came out, uh. Shadow of the Torture was a great guess, honestly. Um, alright. Yeah, because that book sort of, like, plays with morality and, uh, truth and stuff. Anyway. Yeah, and also, like, all of Wolf's books have, you know, narrators who are sort of, like, the, the act of telling the tale is sort of part of the narrative itself. Um, so that's very Wolfian, and just, you know, this paragraph sets us up to find the narrator potentially unreliable, at least, right. and that's another big one in Wolf, just the, the unreliable narrator. Not necessarily always a narrator who lies to you, but one who is just inherently fallible within the world of the, of the text. Mm hmm Okay. Uh, yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go ahead. So this is a short one. You can make me read the next paragraph if you want. Sure. There are dragons in the twins' vegetable garden. Um, is that Meet the Austins? It is not. All right. Hit me with your choices. Uh, let me, uh... Yeah, I wrote mine down. Yeah. But only because Ethan suggested that I do it, so. I didn't say I you had to, though, because, like, I knew I wasn't going to. Right. Because, again, that would be work. Uh, so we have Dragon Flight by Anne McCaffrey. Sure. Uh, Axiom's End by Lindsay Ellis. Or uh, Wind in the Door by Madeline Langle. I'm pretty sure it's Wind in the Door by Madeline Langle. Yes. I guess I knew Meet the Austins was a dumb guess as soon as I said it, because I think that I haven't read that series, but I think it's much less fantastical than yes. like the, the other ones. But I like for some reason, I remembered that opening as being from a Madeline Langle book. Uh, so close to I was close to uh, pulling ahead of you there, but we are tied back up at seven to seven. Ten to ten. That's what I meant. <laughs> Wait. No, because we each guessed... We each got the first three correct. Yeah. So that's nine. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, I, I get it now. I get it now. Yeah. 
For some reason, I thought that us each getting the first three correct at three points each meant we each got six points. <laughs> all right. Are you ready? Yeah. Read read all of Madeline Langle, by the way. Are you telling me that or the gentle listener? All, everyone. Oh, okay. That's, that's fair. A gentleman and a lady traveling from Tunbridge towards that part of the Sussex coast, which lies between Hastings and Eastbourne, being induced by business to quit the high road and attempt a very rough lane, were overturned in toiling up its long ascent, half rock, half sand. The accident happened just beyond the only gentleman's house near the lane, a house which their driver, on, first, on being first required to take that direction, had conceived to be necessarily their object and had with most unwilling looks been constrained to pass by. He had grumbled and shaken his shoulders and pitied and cut his horses so sharply that he might have been open to the suspicion of overturning them on purpose, especially as the carriage was not his master's own, if the road had not indisputably become worse than before as soon as the premises of the said house were left behind, expressing with a most portentous countenance that beyond it no wheels but cartwheels could safely proceed. The severity of the fall was broken by their slow pace and the narrowness of the lane, and the gentleman having scrambled out and helped out his companion, they neither of them at first felt more than shaken and bruised. But the gentleman had, in the course of the extrication, sprained his foot, and soon becoming sensible of it, was obliged in a few moments to cut short both his remonstrances to the driver and his congratulations to his wife and himself and sit down on the bank, unable to stand. Okay. So that's very, like, 1800 British. Um, I would say Austin, but I don't recognize that as any of the open, openings of her novels. Usually she starts with, like, one of the main characters or their father, in the case of Persuasion. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking it's Dickens. Um... And I'm thinking, I haven't read much Dickens, only Tale of Two Cities and um, Christmas Carol, but I'm thinking it might be, is it Tale of Two Cities? No. Okay. Is that, that's your guess? I that's guess my that guess. Is your guess. Yes. Uh, no, right. no, I have a different guess now. <laughs> Good effort. Uh, is it mm -hmm. The Awakening by Kate Chopin or Chopin? I'm not sure how you say it because I think she's British. Yeah. Uh, or Wives and Daughters by Mary Elizabeth Gaskell. Mm -hmm. Or Sanditon by Jane Austen. Oh, Sanditon! I think it's Sanditon. You are correct. Yes. I've not read that one, so... Yeah, I was very proud of myself for coming up with that one, uh, because it's, like, yeah, because I, I know you were big Austin Stan, mm -hmm. as the kids say, and, um, you know, I knew that, like, I knew, I knew that any, any of the major Austins, your, your, uh, persuasions, your senses and sensibility, your prides and prejudice, um even your Northanger's Abbey, like, I, I knew that any of those openings you would probably get instantly. So I was very proud of myself with, for coming up with an Austin that was more obscure, but still guessable, ultimately. Yes, well done. Uh, I should have been like, is it Sanditon or Lady Susan? <laughs> that would have been very evil. Very mean, yes. Okay. Uh -huh. um, All right. You ready? I'm ready. Final round. Fight! Th thank you. Speaking to. <laughs> I can find my last book in here. There should only be one option. Well, I put them all them back. back in. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this isn't exactly the first paragraph, but I'm going to read it all anyway um the wind howled lightning stabbed at the earth erratically like an inefficient assassin thunder rolled back and forth across the dark rain-lashed hills the night was as black as the inside of a cat it was the kind of night you could believe on which gods moved men as though they were pawns on the chessboard of fate in the middle of this elemental storm a fire gleamed among 
the dripping furze bushes like the madness in a weasel's eye. It illuminated three hunched figures. As the cauldron bubbled, an eldritch voice shrieked, When shall we three meet again? There was a pause. Finally, another voice said in a far more er ordinary tone, Well, I can do next Tuesday. Uh, I believe this is the famous novel, The Chronicles of Every D&D Group. <laughs> that one was a joke. That's not my guess. <laughs> I'm looking at the judges. They'll allow it. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to say Weird Sisters by Terry Pratchett. You got it. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding. Well done. Uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but that is one of my favorite, like, openings of any of Pratchett's novels. <laughs> uh, partly because you can just, like... It's just so, like, cinematic, like, comedically cinematic, you, you know. And the overwrought metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they do they do sort of the prose equivalent of, like, like sweeping camera angles with dramatic music. And then, you, you, but you can just see it, I don't know, at least when I read it, I can see it as if it were a, a film where, you know, all of, all of the, the camera angles cut out and the music stops and then... Is it Granny Weatherwax who says the... It doesn't say. I'm guessing it's Granny Weatherwax. You just, you just cut everything and, you know, go into like a like a close-up of her just being like, well, I can do next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. All right. Karen, are you ready? I'm ready. For the final There's countdown? Currently... Where are we at? Um, you have 13 and I have 11. Okay, so this uh, this one could this could be it. Yes. This is uh, this is for all the marbles here. All right. Or possibly twelve and ten. Wow! Wow! You really know, Michael. I need you. <laughs> like this has been fun and all, but like, do you see what I'm what I'm working with without you here? <laughs> Uh, disclaimer number three, gentle listener, both Michael's wife and mine know that, like, Michael and I will one day run away together, so me doing this is not news. Oh this my. This is accurate. What? I, I had not opened this book. First, this paragraph is an entire page long. Ah! Uh, I also didn't look to see if it gave away any key character <laughs> name. Um, so I may only read part of this, but I... I'll make sure to read enough that, you know, you have, a, you have a fair chance. Very good. But I put it to you, my lord, that prize money is of essential importance to the Navy. The possibility, however remote, of making a fortune by some brilliant stroke is an unparalleled spur to the diligence, the activity, and the unremitting attention of every man afloat. I am sure that the serving members of the board will support me in this, he said, glancing around the table. Several of the uniformed figures looked up, and there was a murmur of agreement. It was not universal, however. Some of the civilians had a stuffed and non-committal air, and one or two of the sailors remained staring at the sheets of blotting paper laid out before them. It was difficult to catch the sense of the meeting if, indeed, any distinct current had yet established itself. This was not the usual restricted sessions of the Lord's Commissioner of the Ad Admiralty, but the first omnium gatherum of the new administration, the first since Lord Melville's departure with several new members, many heads of department and representatives of other boards. They were feeling their way, behaving with politic restraint, holding their fire. It was difficult to sense the atmosphere, but although he knew he did not have the meeting entirely with him, yet he felt no decided opposition, a wavering, rather, and he hoped that by the force of his own conviction he might still carry his point against the tepid unwillingness of the First Lord. One or two striking examples of this kind in the course of a long protracted war are enough to stimulate the zeal of the whole fleet throughout years and years of hardship at sea, whereas a denial, on the other hand, must necessarily have a must necessarily have the contrary effect. He was a capable, experienced chief of naval intelligence, but he was no orator, particularly before such a large audience. He had not struck upon the golden phrase, the right words had escaped him, and he was conscious of a certain negative, unpersuaded quality in the air. Okay, so it's obviously one of the Aubrey Maturin novels. What? Uh, I've only read the first two so far. However, it is not either of those because 
Lord talked about Lord Melville's departure and Lord Melville was the the head of the Admiralty or whatever it is, uh in the second one. Sure. And that's not how the first one starts. So I'm thinking it's the third one, but I'm not sure what the title of it is. Very well. You don't have a guess? Um Gods Against Men, I don't know. <laughs> she just did you just come up with, like, a likely-sounding yeah. War at Sea novel title? Yep. Amazing. Um, that is HMS Surprise ah, by Patrick O'Brien. Yes. Uh, and I'm giving you, I'm, I'm just giving you the one point on that one because I was, like, if you'd come up with the, any title, I'd be tempted to give you the three. Uh, but I was, I, I'm, I'm just, this is like when, you know, you concede in chess because you're three moves from checkmate. Like mm-hmm. I was going to read a list of three names or come up with a list of three names, but I was only going going to put one Patrick O'Brien mm-hmm. title on that list, and you were going to guess that instantly. Unless I don't know if I'd come up with if I'd done like Horatio Hornblower <laughs> and like one of the other famous uh, British sea novels, would you have been tempted? Or I'm pretty sure I would have still known it was O'Brien just because. Sure. Of, pretty... Like the specific people they were talking about, oh, like sure. Lord Melville and every everything, and that was like a a big uh, a big part of the politics in the first two were about who the head of the admiralty was sure. and like what their politics were compared to Jack's and what that meant as far as him getting a ship or not getting a ship. Man, they didn't put any of that really scintillating sounding stuff in the film version. Yeah, I know, right? weird it'd be like it'd be like the putting all the walking in the lord of the rings movies right um yeah no so that was hms surprise which is the third book in the aubrey Matron series and i felt like it was a fair a fair entry because like i obviously you you have just read master and commander and post captain the first two yes so i obviously like doing those would be a dead giveaway but if there was any any O'Brien not those that you would recognize. I thought it was fair to to theorize that it would be the third book in the series. Mm-hmm. And that you could maybe come up with the title of that. But I don't know. Maybe some people don't get way halfway through one book in a series and immediately start looking at the next one for no reason. Like <laughs> I sometimes have been known to do. Yeah. the The books do read like very... Victorian novels, like, they were written in the 70s, mostly, 70s to 90s. Right. Uh, but the the tone is very much period piece of uh, very early 1800s, so actually pre-Victorian Regency. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I could tell he was doing that, but he's also making some really interesting prose choices that, like, preserve that vocabulary and, like, some of the sentence structure, but also make it very like readable to a modern reader like that's true i I think his sentences aren't quite as complex (laughs) they certainly don't involve as many like colons and semicolons ad nauseum as texts from the period do and i think he's even even messed with some other stuff to just make it very much more readable Mm -hmm. which is you know obviously the smart and valid choice yeah they're also surprisingly funny like at one point the captain has to escape from France sure because uh he got stuck there as Napoleon declared war uh so he does dress up as a bear and his friend the doctor leads him out of out of the country pretending to be a bear a bear leader bear handler <laughs> bear or handler interesting uh yeah no i've i've been meaning You've been making me want to yeah. pick these books up. I, I have not done it yet, but um, I was going to say something else. Oh, the other interesting thing about that opening is that he's O'Brien's breaking one of the like hard and fast rules about uh, novel openings. Uh-huh. Do you know what that one is? No. Never start in dialogue. Oh. Like, that's, you know, if they're... If if you're reading a like how to write fiction book or article specifically about beginnings, um, the f- the second thing the first thing they'll tell you is never begin with your character waking up in the morning. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing that they'll tell you is never start in dialogue. Um, the main reason for that is like you don't. It's kind of like starting in the middle of a really emotional scene, um, where like you don't have any context for who's speaking or who's doing the emoting. Like you don't care about these people yet, so uh, you know the it, it basically sort of sort of just trips you up rather than creating a good launching point yeah. kind of thing. They. Yeah, see, but they say that, and yet, like, I think at least three or four of these books did do that, so... Sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's like anything. It's like having, starting with your character waking up in the morning. Yeah. Like, you know, there, there are reasons that you can break the rules, but there are also reasons that they tell beginning writers not to. That's true. So O'Brien is clearly a, a seasoned writer and, you know, knows exactly what he's doing with this, because, I mean... Part of the reason I think in this instance he's starting in dialogue is it doesn't matter sort of who the character is. It's much more um, the dialogue is presenting information about the politics, right. about the world. And it's like you can do that starting in dialogue or you could do it in sort of a much less interesting, much drier, like prose info dump mm-hmm. that doesn't give anything about a, a character. So it's like, yeah. no, it works here. It also probably works here because it's the third book in the series. I don't know if the first one starts that way, but like, if you're if you're on book three in a series, you have a certain amount of investment, at least in the world, if not also in the characters, and so it makes more. It's more like starting your third chapter in dialogue rather than beginning an actual book. Yeah, and obviously Madeline Angle can do whatever she she wants. Yes. (laughs) Uh, There was one other thing I wanted to pull out of this opening that I just uh, appreciated. Um, oh, it was difficult to catch the sense of the meeting if indeed any distinct current had yet established itself. <laughs> there are like one or two other like naval metaphors uh, in there that were not like they were not directly to do with the Navy being discussed, but what, rather with the feeling of the room. But, you know, you know that those word choices were extremely deliberate on O'Brien's part. Mm hmm. Uh, cool. Well, anything further to say? No, I think we should do a freeze frame high five to end the episode. Okay, I have some bad news for you about how podcasts work. Like, we can't? We can't. That's that's the news. That's pretty sad. Yeah, and also I have a bunch of, like, end stuff I I have to do. I suppose. So... I mean, we could do a freeze frame high five after that, but okay. it's still like, I don't know how to say this. No one would see it. <laughs> That's true, I suppose. Anyway, so you've given you've given promotions for um, E.L. Konigsberg. Mm-hmm. You started to give one for John Green, and I very meanly kind of yes, kind of curtailed cool. that. Um, but but you can go on the record as recommending John Green. Yes. Uh, over and against Michael's objections, yes. but he's not here, so take that. Yeah, as you said, take that, Michael. Thank you. Um, you have thoroughly recommended uh, the the Aubrey Matron books by yep. Patrick O'Brien. Now, is there anything else? Well, you have before we put you back in your box with your bread and water and script that you must stick to. Right. Is there anything else you'd like to say while you sort of have a bully pulpit here. I mean, you gotta read Terry Pratchett. Oh, yeah. You gotta. I mean, that's... Is that's that it? That's pretty the, much it. That's the promotion? You gotta, you gotta start with, like, either Weird Sisters or probably Guards Guards would be my recommendations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Any, anything else? No, that's all. Is there anything you want to promote? Is there anywhere you want people to follow you on the internet? Uh, please don't follow me on the internet. I'm not very online. Uh, Critical Role is great. You could you could watch that if you're into. Uh, I don't think they need the publicity help here. <laughs> Real play D and D shows. They just released an animated. In fact, like they're technically show. a competitor of like some of the shows we have on our Tapestry. Oh, that's network. true. That's true. So I am gonna yeah, have to watch, cut that out. Watch all of the other shows on Tapestry. They're excellent. Watch um, them. Yeah. You won't be able to watch them? Well, just sort of stare at the, at the, um, what is it called? A lithograph? The, the, 
the sound visualization as you're as you're listening and then it's sort of like you're watching it like you can sort of put that this, feeling into is this like when all of us in 1999 first got a hold of like windows media player and they had the the mesmerizing like yeah like lava lamp yeah that thing. when you played and, and we did like put in CDs or whatever to listen to and just stare at those yep. those waveforms for a while. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that extremely helpful set of promotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, everyone, before you go listen to Critical Role, please do listen to every single other podcast we have on the Tapestry Radio Network because... We're the ones who need the view, the help, and the views. That's true. And also, it'll take them, less time. I'm now calling them views, and that's your fault, Karen. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have other podcasts. We have another book podcast called Freddy Goes to a Podcast, where three grown adult men uh, read through a children's book series from 100 years ago. Um, we have a real play podcast of our own, thank you very much, called Pokemon Rollout. Um, it is an actual play Pokemon Tabletop RPG Podcast. I think I got some or all of those words wrong or in the wrong order. But, you know, just go go Google Pokemon Rollout, uh, and it's good. Um, we have other podcasts, too. There's Fiasco, another real play podcast of the, the sort of improv-heavy RPG Fiasco. Um, some other shows that I forget right now. Uh, and also... Uh, for this show, we will do your homework. We won't do it well, and we will do it in such a way that if you copy and paste it and turn it in as your homework entry, you will get hauled off to plagiarism jail because your teacher will be like, hey, Greg, why does your paper say I, Michael, think that blah, 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 and I, Ethan, think that blah, 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 like, this is very weird, Greg, and you're going to plagiarism jail now. Yeah, and- they, they kept me in plagiarism jail. That's why, that's why I was in a box. You shouldn't admit to plagiarism. Oh. I mean, like, once you're in plagiarism jail, like, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I enjoy, I do, I do have to appreciate the fact that you've, like, yes-anded yourself into plagiarism jail in sort of an unprovoked way. Like, <laughs> I didn't try to trap you into this. You just did that. That's true. Um. <laughs> anyway, uh. Before we have any other disturbing confessions from my wife, uh, <laughs> I think I think that's all. Oh, anyway, if you wanna if you wanna submit homework, there's a form at tapestryradio.org/scotchcast. Fill it out, send it in. It'll be fun. Um, oh wait, if you wanna read my mash and or Harry Potter yes! fan fiction, you can look for me at Reza Hawkeye Pierce. At AO3.com. Is that the actual URL? AO3? I think so. Okay. Archive of our own. Yeah, Archive of our own is the is the site, so um yes, Reza Hawkeye Pierce uh-huh. is the the pen name um playing to that extremely large base of people who are both MASH and Full Metal Alchemist fans. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um so that's probably Michael, actually. Michael should probably be reading this. <laughs> um yeah, uh, th- that was the part where I usually we usually throw it to the guest for uh, any last self-promotion there. Um, I'm at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I'm not on Twitter. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you already had your window, so you're oh. going back into the plagiarism oh, jail okay. box. Uh, Bye! Oof, she, just, she just put herself in plagiarism jail, like, literally this time. Um... Yeah, now you can't talk for the rest of the episode if you're going to stay with the with the fiction. So that you've done that to yourself too. Uh they can hear you laughing. <laughs> like you're breaking everyone's continuity right now. I'm sorry for breaking the the you're breaking the fourth wall. Fourth wall. You're shattering it. Yeah. Um I don't know. That's it. I think I I forgot where we were in the script if there even was one. Um but that said, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Share the show if you like it. And we'll be... Oh, also, uh, the next episode should be a regular episode. Um, 
with Michael torturing me instead of my wife torturing me. <laughs> um, and we are reading the book Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. So look for that one. Uh, read along. If you have any thoughts about that in the next couple weeks especially, but also whenever, um, you can you can email us or, or go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. There's a, just a general contact form for that. All right, that's actually all. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Ethan. You're, you're welcome. Yep. Okay, everybody. Bye. Bye. I love you. Now, wait. <laughs> Maybe that's just a habit of ending phone calls. Yeah, it makes a conference, video conferences with your boss oh, real Oh, it's real exciting. good. I've almost done it a couple times. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna unpack this off mic. Bye. <laughs>